Thank you for coming. Uh, my name is Seth Jones. I'm the Harold Brown Chair and the Director of the Transnational Threats Project to CSIS. I also teach in the Security in the Strategic Studies Program at Johns Hopkins University's School for Advanced International Studies. A couple of notes before we start. The first one is we have a seminar next door, and as part of that seminar, they've got food out front. Uh, that is not our food, so um, while, while we will have lots of issues to discuss, um, food is not one of them. The other issue is that while we often, um, uh, while we always say this, we certainly don't expect an emergency to happen, but just in case one does, uh, the CSIS ground rules here are to go over to the National Geographic uh, Museum, which is about a block away. There are a number of great exhibits at Titanic. There's a great cafeteria there. So uh, we will, on my instructions, if, if something happens, uh, I'll direct you on where to go. So with that, uh, I, am, I am really pleased to have Max Abrams here. Max is Assistant Professor of Political Science at Northeastern University. He's here for uh, a discussion of his new book, Rules for Rebels, The Science of Victory in Militant History. Um, one of the first articles that, um, maybe the first article, Max, where I uh, was drawn to your work was your international security piece in the fall of 2006 on why terrorism does not work. And it was interesting both from a theoretical standpoint as well as an empirical one, but it took on um, a subject where there had started to be some conventional wisdom by uh, individuals led by Bob Pape, who I had worked with at Chicago. So your willingness to take on uh, a major argument head-on, both uh, theoretically and empirically, was quite impressive. So the way we'll uh, operate here is uh, I'm going to turn the floor over to Max. He'll then speak for 20 to 30 minutes. Um, we'll then sit down, have a short discussion, um, and then we'll open it up for your questions. Uh, so without further ado, I will hand the floor over to you, Max, and thanks again for coming. Oops. Thanks very much. Imagine you have a grievance, a really bad grievance against the government. Maybe you're a Rohingya husband in Myanmar whose wife was just gang raped by security goons and you need the ethnic cleansing to stop. Maybe you're a Venezuelan mother who can't feed her kids because the president has enacted cruel economic policies and barred opposition candidates from contesting them. Maybe you're a homeless child from Bahrain because your family comes from the oppressed Shia majority. Maybe the British government is after you because you're an unrepentant right-wing extremist who doesn't think Muslims belong. Or maybe you're a Sunni engineer living in Nice or Orlando or Sydney or Dhaka yearning for a caliphate. Whatever your grievance, real or imagined, respectable or repugnant, it exceeds your capacity to redress it. 
After all, if you and your crew were stronger, you wouldn't be opposing the government. With any luck, you'd be leading it. Not surprisingly then, the history of the aggrieved is a story of failure. But not always. I've just published a book showing how aggrieved groups can overcome this power asymmetry against the government to achieve their political demands. My title, Rules for Rebels, is inspired by Saul Alinsky's classic, Rules for Radicals. In his 1971 primer for the have-nots, the father of modern community organizing shared lessons he had learned over the years for successful protest. But the problem with rules for radicals is that protesters often conclude that protesting isn't enough. Historically, many groups have escalated to violence after nonviolence failed. Michael Collins, for example, concluded in the early 20th century that the Brits would continue to ignore his pleas for Irish independence unless the revolutionaries escalated with violence. Menachem Begin and other Zionist leaders reached the same conclusion in the 1940s, that the Brits would continue to occupy Palestine unless the Yishuv turned to violence. Algerian nationalists said the same thing in the 1950s, that they too turned to violence only after the French had ignored their protests to end the occupation. In the 1960s, South African activists like Nelson Mandela likewise prescribed violence after concluding that his protests alone weren't about to end the apartheid. More recently, accounts of Syrian rebels suggest many of them also picked up weapons as a last resort. The truth is that, like it or not, some radicals will become rebels, and there are rules for them too. Rules for Rebels starts where Rules for Radicals ends. It analyzes hundreds of militant groups from all over the world to discern why some succeed and others fail. I come with welcome news for the rebel leader. My research reveals he possesses a surprising amount of agency over his political destiny. Triumph is possible, but only for those who know what to do. It turns out there's a science to victory in militant history, but even rebels must follow rules. My rules for rebels may seem counterintuitive, but they're based on original insights from many academic disciplines, especially political science, psychology, criminology, economics, management marketing, communications and sociology, and then tested with a bunch of different methodological approaches from detailed qualitative case studies, to large-end regression analysis, to content analysis, to network analysis, even some survey experiments. The key takeaway is that smart militant leaders aren't always successful, but successful leaders must be smart. Islamic State may come to mind when you think of a successful militant group led by a smart leader. Clad in black robes, ISIS leader Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi ascended the pulpit of the Great Al-Nuri Mosque in the Iraqi city of Mosul on July 5, 2014, proclaiming the emergence of a new caliphate. In his Friday sermon, the self-professed caliph announced to the Ummah that his foot soldiers had just succeeded in capturing swaths of land in Iraq and Syria, effectively creating an Islamic state. By year's end, ISIS would control a third of Iraq and Syria, 
landmass roughly equal to the size of Great Britain, where the terrorists ruled over 9 million people. The Islamic State was bolstered by the largest influx of international jihadis in history. Over 40,000 foreign fighters from 110 countries headed to Syria and Iraq, more than four times the number of Mujahideen who had traveled to Afghanistan in the 80s to battle the Red Army. ISIS's reach was hardly limited to the caliphate. Scores of ISIS attacks in dozens of countries terrorized the world. By 2016, Baghdadi had accepted the allegiance of 43 terrorist group affiliates, from Boko Haram in Nigeria to Abu Sayyaf in the Philippines. Now they were all fighting under the black banner. Not only did ISIS have territory and fighters, but it raked in over a billion dollars a year in oil sales, taxes, smuggling, looting, and hostage taking. The international media was quick to crown Islamic State leaders as masterminds. In a story entitled, Military Skill and Terrorist Technique Fuel Success of ISIS, the New York Times gushed that the group's battlefield successes are due to the pedigree of its leadership. The story concluded, these guys know the terrorism business inside and out. The Guardian credited ISIS's apparent feats to highly intelligent leaders calling the shots. The Financial Times proclaimed, ISIS is chillingly smart. If ever there were a smart strategic militant group, Islamic State was apparently it. This conventional wisdom in the media was fueled by think tank pundits who proclaimed ISIS leaders as strategic geniuses in three main ways. First, ISIS leaders were allegedly smart to recognize the strategic value of brutalizing civilians, not only in its stronghold of Iraq and Syria, but in indiscriminate massacres around the world. In a political article entitled, How ISIS Out-Terrorized Bin Laden, Will McCants of the Brookings Institute explained that ISIS has been remarkably successful at recruiting fighters, capturing lands, subduing subjects, and creating a state. Why? Because violence and gore work. We're told that this terrifying approach to state building has an impressive track record. His Brookings hallmate, Shadi Hamid, shared this assessment in a book in countless media interviews that the shooting rampage at the Bataclan Theater and the bombing of the Russian passenger jet over the Sinai were, as he put it, smart moves because instilling terror in the hearts of your opponents undermines their morale, making them more likely to stand down, flee, or surrender. And we're told that the willingness to inflict terrible violence has a deterrent effect, raising the cost for anyone who so much as thinks of challenging the group. In their bestseller on ISIS, Michael Weiss and Hassan Hassan repeat that the group's notorious brutality helped it. In countless media interviews, they said that the head chopping and cage burning of hapless victims follows a brutal logic. It indeed showcases the evil genius of ISIS. Clearly, pundits have been impressed with how the ISIS leadership sanctions a policy of unbridled barbarism. Second, Pundits commended how the ISIS leadership generated so much bloodletting, largely by decentralizing the organization. The ISIS leadership takes a hands-off approach, beckoning fanatics across the globe to butcher people of their choosing in the group's name. According to Clint Watts of the Foreign Policy Research Institute, the key to ISIS's gains is that the leadership recognizes the benefits 
of diffuse operational control, which grants extremists the autonomy to plot and plan locally. Peter Bergen of the New America Foundation also credited the apparent success of ISIS to its diffuse organizational structure. What empowers ISIS, he wrote for CNN.com, is it accepts all comers, encouraging fanatics across the globe to carry out attacks anywhere they'd like. The brilliance of the ISIS system, echoed MSNBC terrorism commentator Malcolm Nance, is that its recruitment system is almost passive. Baghdadi invites every nutcase to the global massacre. Baghdadi welcomes them all. The leaders could never have inflicted so much carnage on their own, but they were allegedly wise enough to expand the bloodbath by decentralizing ISIS operations and recruitment. Third, pundits applauded the ISIS strategy of broadcasting its misdeeds in lurid detail over social media platforms like Twitter and Facebook. ISIS has used social media to showcase its innovative sentencing styles, from beheadings with a knife, to decapitation through explosive detonation cord, to death by dragging, drowning, stoning, burial, immolation, uh, roof chucking, and squashing, sometimes with the tank. Philip Smythe of the Washington Institute for Near East Policy affirms that ISIS succeeded by cultivating the perfect sociopathic image. Charlie Winter and Colin Clark of Rand agree that Islamic State's propaganda has been truly unmatched, not only in terms of the quality of its output, but in its quantity too. Charles Lister of the Middle East Institute says that these jihadists in particular proved especially adept at managing their use of social media and the production of qualitatively superior video and imagery output. And yet, Something unforeseen by these terrorism talking heads happened. ISIS's beloved caliphate died just as quickly as it had appeared. Think Tank pundits had been too busy glorifying the group's strategy to realize it was a bust. The green in this map is where ISIS lost territory, and the red is where ISIS held onto territory. Though, of course, even these slices are now basically gone. In fact, the caliphate got smaller every year until it all but vanished. In 2015, ISIS lost 40% of Iraq and 20% of Syria. In 2016, ISIS lost another quarter of its land. By spring 2017, ISIS controlled less than 7% of Iraq and was getting vanquished in Syria by the Syrian Arab army, its Shia militia partners, American and Russian air power, Kurdish warriors, and a smattering of other militants called the SDF. Tellingly, in June 2017, ISIS blew up the Al-Nuri Mosque, the very site where the caliphate had been declared. A few weeks later, from the ruins of Al-Nuri, the Iraqi military spokesman faced no ISIS opposition whatsoever when he declared their fictitious state had fallen. Even the fanboys in pro-ISIS chat rooms conceded the caliphate project was a complete failure. Although ISIS's raison d'etre of an Islamic state went up in smoke, there was a clear winner, its arch enemies. The Salafists repeatedly said that ISIS was intended to curb the influence of Iran and its Shia proxies, especially Hezbollah. But instead of becoming the seat of a hardline Sunni state, Iraq and Syria turned into Shia country. 
the Islamic State project face-planted by its very own standard. The terrorists were, as Trump once called them, evil losers. But who could have predicted this stunning reversal of fortune? Well, I did, from day one. If you had the misfortune of following me on Twitter, you'd know that I was always a fierce skeptic of the ISIS conventional wisdom. From the moment Baghdadi declared a caliphate in 2014, I gave hundreds of media interviews from the Associated Press to the BBC, pointing out the basic analytical problem. The very behaviors lauded by pundits as strategic have historically doomed militant groups. ISIS, I charge, would be no exception. With a little historical context and methods training, it was obvious to me Baghdadi was no mastermind and neither were his fellow strategists. They were, as you'll see, supremely stupid terrorists. President Obama got hammered in the media for saying early on that ISIS was the JV team of terrorists, but he was right, at least when it comes to their cluelessness about devising a winning political strategy. Smart militant leaders follow three simple rules for victory, the exact opposite of what ISIS leaders have done. First, smart leaders recognize that not all violence is equal for achieving their stated political goals. In fact, they grasp that some attacks should be carefully avoided because they're deeply counterproductive for the cause. My research is the first to empirically demonstrate that there's variation in the political utility of attacks depending on the target. Compared to more selective violence against military and other government targets, indiscriminate violence against civilian targets is counterproductive. So the first thing that smart militant leaders do is recognize that civilian attacks are a recipe for political failure. You might say that the first rule for rebels is for leaders to learn not to use terrorism at all. There's no consensus over the definition of terrorism, but most scholars define it as attacks against civilian targets in particular. When we talk about terrorism, we mean civilian attacks, like against schools, rock concerts, soccer games, commercial airplanes, restaurants, cafes, churches, synagogues, mosques. We're not talking about blowing the treads off of a tank. What matters for the rebel leader, though, isn't how we define terrorism, but that he understands the folly of harming civilians. Leaders may not initially grasp the risk of terrorism, but the smart ones learn it over time. Without internalizing this rule, they can't be expected to follow the other ones and prevail. The second rule is for the leader to actively restrain lower level members from committing terrorism. It doesn't matter whether the, whether the leader understands the futility of terrorism if his members continue to do it. The key is for the leader to structure the organization to restrain his members from using terrorism. In practice, this means centralizing the organization so he can educate fighters to avoid civilians, discipline fighters who harm civilians, and vet out prospective members who seem prone to attacking civilians. Whereas the first rule is for the leader to recognize the value of civilian restraint, the second rule is for getting members to abide. And the third rule is what to do when they don't. For the militant leader, the key is to make the group look moderate, even when members act otherwise. 
This means protecting the brand by denying organizational involvement, or at least intent, whenever wayward operatives harm civilians. These three simple rules for rebels, learning to win, restraining to win, and denying to win, are the secrets for victory. Long before ISIS inverted this playbook, smart militant leaders were following it. They're the ones nodding their heads from parliaments, not spikes. So when I present to, a, uh, to just a strictly academic audience, what I do is I walk them through all of my sort of multi-method evidence that's behind each of the three rules. Um, and basically, that's also the way the book is divided. What I presented to you here um, is just my thesis, essentially. It's evidence-free. Um, and it, the book is divided into three parts. Uh, where the, the first part presents all the evidence for rule one. Second part, all the evidence for rule two. Third part, all the evidence for rule three. Um, but we have a very um, distinguished host here in Seth Jones who's written on related things. So we thought it would be fun to have more time for a little back and forth. And also I know that there are a number of uh, you know, very talented and you know, uh, learned people on this topic in the audience. So we're gonna have a more sort of extended Q&A for that reason. So now we'll just sit. Great. Thank you. this to you here so it doesn't All fall. Right. Thanks, man. Okay, great. Uh, we're going to ask a few questions here and then open it up to your comments. Uh, and let me first go to um, the argument because uh, I'd like you to unpack it. Um, so you're, uh, let's, let's start with uh, rule one. Actually, even even before we, we get we, we get there, what you you talk about uh, three rules for victory, right? Okay, can you spend a little time unpacking what what does victory mean for you? How do you understand sure. it, and how do you measure victory so that when we weigh your rules, we understand what the dependent variable is here? Right, that's a very good question. Um, so I mean, a lot of people you know wonder this. Um, basically, what is it that terrorists want? What is their end game? Uh, it's essential to have some sort of answer in order to measure this question of efficacy. What, after all, are they striving for? Um, I, I'll give you the longer answer to this. Um, but basically, the origins of this project, and I was, I was telling Mike before, before we started here, um, was that I was uh, in the West Bank uh, during the second Antifada. Um, and this was a, a, a very... Uh, uh, this was a time period where there was substantially less Israeli support for making territorial concessions than there was during the Oslo peace process. Basically, starting very uh, early on in the Oslo peace process, there were Palestinian terrorist attacks, which drove down Israeli confidence, enthusiasm, whatever you want to call it, uh, in the idea of making peace by negotiating a settlement with the Palestinians. So prior to the terrorism, they were actually more in favor of making territorial concessions. Meanwhile, Israel's response was to sort of back away from the idea that it could reach a negotiated settlement with the Palestinians, but rather instead take unilateral countermeasures by building up this massive security barrier, whatever you want to call it. The Israelis call it a fence, the Palestinians call it a wall. But the point was, from a strategic perspective, to prevent the suicide bombers from crossing um, from the West Bank uh, and blowing up you know, Egged buses in Israel. Um, and 
the, the Palestinians I spoke to um, told me you know, that this wall was, a, was an absolute disgrace, um, that it was horrible for them, uh, that they were appalled by it, um, that uh, for all sorts of reasons, it's very bad for them. Um, but in particular, most relevant to me as a political scientist, is that it erodes um, the future contours um, of a eventual Palestinian state. And so from the vantage of Palestinian nationalist aspirations, the wall, which was, in my opinion, built on the back of the terrorism, was deeply counterproductive for their political aims. At exactly this time came out an article uh, by your former professor, Robert Pape, at the University of Chicago. It's a very influential article uh, among academics called The Strategic Logic of Suicide Terrorism, published in the flagship journal in Political Science, APSR. And it's a very ambitious thesis, but what he tries to answer um, is, um, why do groups use suicide tactics? And his answer is that it works. And what he means by it working, he's very, very specific about what he means. He means as an instrument of coercion, specifically in terms of pressuring the target country into making territorial concessions. Many, many prominent political scientists, people like David Lake, Andrew Kidd, Barbara Walter, they all subscribe to this school of thought, which I have termed the strategic model of terrorism. And the basic idea is that uh, militant groups, aggrieved groups more broadly even, turn to the tactic of terrorism, specifically blowing up civilian targets, because it offers them the best chance in pressuring governments into making major, major concessions for the groups to achieve their political platforms. And so that also, when I look at efficacy, that's the main thing that I look at, is to what extent did the use of terrorism, compared to other tactical choices available to the aggrieved groups, um, affect the odds that the government will make concessions? Um, this is not just some kind of a nerd academic debate between me and the strategic model of terrorists. It's actually a very important question, because most people believe that terrorism is used for some sort of a political aim. If we define the success of terrorism, for example, only on an operational level, does it, you know, is terrorism violent? Does it hurt people? You know, that's not that interesting. Then, then of course, terrorism would have a 100% success rate because by its very definition, it's violent. Um, does it attract media attention? Yes, it terrorizes people. But as an instrument of coercion uh, for achieving its political goals, uh, my research is the first to find um, that it's politically ineffective. Uh, it's really ineffective in two senses you might think about it. First of all, the use of it is highly correlated with political failure. Groups that use terrorism, especially by you know, attacking civilian targets have a very, very uh, low rate of political success. But furthermore, even after controlling for all sorts of other factors, doing all sorts of regression analyses, taking into account the capability of the group, uh, the nature of the group's demands, um, the strength of the target country, even after isolating all of these potential confounds, the use of terrorist tactics, specifically non-state actors attacking civilian targets, has an independent negative effect on the odds of government concessions. But I also look at another DV within the book, um, because some people might push back and say, well, what about groups that only care about their own survival? rather than achieving their stated political goals. Well, even if you treat organizational survival as the dependent variable, rather than political concessions, terrorism, it turns out, is still a losing tactic. And that's because, in general, terrorism tends to erode human capital, which is the backbone of all organizations. Um, and so, uh, 
for all sorts of reasons which we can get into. What I find, again, contrary to a lot of the conventional wisdom, especially in the media, is that the use of terrorism is, is actually a counterproductive tactic for growing the membership size of the group. The media likes to focus on what I call the recruitment effects of the terrorism. Um, basically, uh, when a group uses you know, carnage, um, it, like a Jihadi John video, for example, that may appeal to certain sociopaths who are looking to join up with the most depraved group. Um, but what the media ignored um, and basically contributed to a lot of its misguided predictions about ISIS is what I call the attrition effect of terrorism. The attrition effect um, in ISIS's case very, very quickly exceeded its recruitment effect. Um, you know, I like to say that I have a lot of crazy friends um, and that when, when my crazy friends or when anybody I knew, uh, you know, looked at the Jihadi John beheading videos, it didn't make them, you know, more sympathetic to ISIS. It made them more repulsed by ISIS. It made them more in favor of a strong military response against ISIS. Um, and so it's not a coincidence that Islamic State managed to elicit the largest international counterterrorism coalition ever assembled. Uh, pretty much the one thing that almost all countries in the world could agree on is that ISIS was very bad. This actually unites Russia, the United States, Iran, the Saudis. There is no other issue where there was so much consensus that the world should be um, anti-ISIS. And of course, when the whole world is against you, uh, it's very, very difficult uh, to win really in any sense. And so international support was very, very low for ISIS relative to to more moderate groups. Um, furthermore, local support for ISIS was also way, way lower. Um, furthermore, even other militant groups operating in the same theater were much less likely to team up with ISIS than they were with each other. Um, ISIS was basically seen as a pariah internationally, locally, um, and even in that theater among other militants. And so um, what I'm kind of illustrating you know, anecdotally here is that uh, the use of really just profoundly extreme tactics are bad not just for uh, coercing government concessions, but also for growing the membership size of your group, which is a very important measure of capability that helps um, militant groups thrive in other ways beyond just the achievement of their political aims. So one interesting question that, and this is not the subject of, of what you wrote on, but it has, it has an, it's an interesting comparison because when you look at efforts to counter rebels, uh, there are a number of cases, quite a few, including Russian operations in Syria today, where they do target civilians and it becomes uh, an important strategy. If we look at Sri Lankan efforts against the LTTE, Russian operations in Chechnya, even Pakistan operations against TTP in Pakistan, we see heavy focusing in some cases in what I would call a punishment strategy that does target civilians in cases where one can make an argument that targeting civilians uh, may be helpful from a counterinsurgency uh, perspective. So, so two questions along these lines. Um, what is your sense about responses to rebels and the, and the targeting civilians? And, and if there's a difference in the, in the targeting of civilians between counterinsurgency operations and rebel operations, what explains the difference? Yeah. So when, when, I, when I first basically advanced this thesis uh, that uh, all else equal, 
attacking civilian targets is counterproductive for non-state actors. The main sort of pushback I got, especially from you know, the clever people, um, was that essentially uh, target selection was what methods people would call epiphenomenal to political failure. That essentially the low rate of success was, dr was driven by a latent variable. And that latent variable was capability. Um, so one thing that I did was I, I tried to introduce in my studies all sorts of proxies for capability to showing that even when you include them, non-state actors attacking civilians doesn't work. But I also took a very close look at the literature on when governments attack civilian targets because there's a major uh, disparity in, in the power between almost all militant groups and governments, unless, the gov unless that country is just thoroughly messed up and it's just a civil war where you know, nobody reigns supreme. And so uh, among academics, when non-state actors attack civilian targets, that's basically in the realm of terrorism studies. When governments are attacking civilians, we call that civilian victimization. So I took a deep dive into the civilian victimization literature. Um, and the, the, in general, I think it's fair to say, based on people like Alex Downs, um, who really just specialize in this area, that, uh, that, that governments too pay a, pay a price um, for indiscriminate violence. That most of that literature, most of that empirical literature finds um, that the violence is more uh, effective when it's selective. That the more indiscriminate it is, the higher the so-called audience costs. Now I understand there are some studies that find the opposite. Jay Lyle, for example, has a good empirical study on the Chechens. Um, but most of that literature in the aggregate finds that governments also, just like non-state actors, would be wise not to uh, harm civilians, not just for moral reasons, um, but as an instrument of policy. And that's why whenever a national military harms civilians, you can be sure that that nation's enemies are gonna point it out. And they're gonna say, look at the Americans. Look at, you know, Russia today. RT calls me up when the US military bombs uh, Kandus, you know, when it bombs the hospital there. Because it's an embarrassment. Um, it's, a, it's an easy way to turn the rest of the world against you. Um, Assad, you know, there are all sorts of disputes about his hand in, in chemical attacks, especially after 2003, or 2013. But Assad doesn't, you know, brag about harming civilian targets, he has tended to be on the other side saying, no, 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 you know, we don't do this. The same with Russian attacks. Uh, and there's a reason why governments are not bragging jihadi John style about their civilian carnage is because it tends to have a counterproductive effect. Uh, and so uh, the, the, what is true for non-state actors in this case with respect to target selection is true also for national militaries. So one thing before opening it up is uh, if we could just go to rule one, for example, and if I could get you just to spell out in a little bit more detail the causal logic that targeting civilians, yeah. what impact does that have? You, you talk, for example, about the impact it has on uh, others, that the, the uh, counter-ISIS campaign, for example, was in part a result of the gratuitous violence that was, and the, the video imagery that came out of that. But what about the population in general in the area where rebels are operating? What's the logic of how civilian targeting undermines 
local population views. And when we read Mao, for example, uh, Mao makes it very clear that uh, the ability of a rebel group to gauge, win the support of a local population, he argues, is, is essential. So one of the things that civilian targeting starts to do is, is to undermine that. But, but can you walk us through um, both the logic of it and then uh, other cases that you find useful? You talked about ISIS, but other, other cases uh, that you find useful to um, uh, e e explain how that's worked in practice? Sure. Um, I mean, th this is very much a large-end book, um, but uh, it's much more than that. It, it really uh, does a deep dive into all sorts of different groups, um, where basically I show for each rule um, what success looks like, uh, what failure looks like. Um, an example of a, uh, of a successful group uh, would be the Urgun uh, in pressuring uh, the Brits from, uh, from Palestine. Uh, Menachem Begin uh, was basically, it seems like he had a pretty good uh, understanding um, of the three rules um, in terms of uh, preferring uh, you know, selective violence, uh, recognizing that he needed uh, a certain amount of control over his operatives. He couldn't just have them go anywhere. He was also very good at uh, courting uh, the international community. Uh, even better than Menachem Begin uh, was Nelson Mandela. Uh, Mandela really had a very good appreciation um, for all three uh, rules. Um, one could imagine um, you know, how those campaigns would have gone very differently. Imagine if Nelson Mandela uh, were, instead of advocating for selective violence in the form of sabotage, if instead he was in favor of just empowering anybody, you know, in South Africa to blow up um, any target. Um, this would besmirch the, the cause internationally. But also locals, you know, it turns out they don't like being, you know, randomly uh, struck. Um, and so uh, militants don't really have to choose between the support of the locals versus the support of the international community. In general, when you push it too far in terms of your tactical choices, it's counterproductive for both. Um, and so almost all of the cases that are highlighted um, sort of reflexively by people as examples of terrorist success stories, when you look closer at them, you realize that actually they weren't like ISIS at all. They were following all three rules for rebels. Um, a, a, another last example, just so you guys have, a, just to concretize my argument so you have a better sense of what I'm talking about in terms of the group, is, uh, is Hezbollah. Hezbollah is very frequently uh, hailed as an example of showing how terrorism works, um, specifically how it managed to uh, coerce Israel and the US out of southern Lebanon. But of course, that violence uh, was against uh, essentially military targets, not against civilian ones. Uh, Nasrallah is a much smarter leader than Baghdadi ever was. He understood differences in target selection, and he also understood better how to impose his targeting preferences on his own fighters. And so Nasrallah has much more discipline over his fighters than ISIS ever had. 
Um, and so whenever there's sort of like a major kind of a, an attack, uh, the, the Hezbollah leadership um, is, is providing um, that sort of guidance and watching for it, um, and even disciplining operatives who stray away from it. Uh, and of course, the nature of its, of its PR is also uh, very different uh, as well. So I hope that that gives you a, a better sense of at least the, the success stories and the perils of uh, violating these rules. You know, it, it's, it's, it struck me, and then I'll open it up, it's, it struck me that in uh, paying close attention and spending a lot of time in Afghanistan, the Taliban has, uh, while, while they, as UN data shows, they have fairly large um, numbers of civilian casualties in some years, their rhetoric and to some degree their actions have been uh, limited targeting of civilians. So I assume you have data on this. Is that is that where we're going? Yeah. What I'm showing. So I know. I, yeah. I know that you've done some uh, some field research in in Afghanistan. Um, the I look a lot at the Taliban in the book um, from from kind of the outside, um, looking at the Taliban. You might think, well, this is a absolutely savage group where the leadership uh, it just absolutely doesn't care about what its fighters do. Uh, because there is a lot of civilian carnage. Um, and yet, um, it turns out um, that when you read the tactical instructions by the leadership of the Taliban, um, they do seem to be cognizant, actually, that civilian targeting um, is a major, major strategic liability. And so they are actually telling their operatives um, not to attack civilian targets. This right here is um, the, uh, the difference in the kinds of uh, attack targets that the leadership claims credit for. And you can see that when civilians are the target, the Taliban leadership is much less enthusiastic about claiming credit for those attacks. And so although the Taliban kills a lot of people, the leadership is actually smarter than ISIS ever was. And I would argue um, the Taliban is also doing better. And that's uh, partly because um, it does a better job of, uh, of following the rules. Um, interestingly, I also there's also a lot of research in the book about the effects of leadership decapitation. Um, it's, uh, it's quite dangerous, I think, that, the, that perhaps the cornerstone of our counterterrorism strategy, really since 2008, has been taking out the leader of militant groups. And one of the reasons why that's dangerous is because I believe that uh, practitioners and academics alike don't have a very good understanding of what it is that the leader of militant groups actually does. And so when you take out the leader of a militant group, but you don't really understand what that leader is actually doing, the consequences can be quite unpredictable and even counterproductive. In my book, I illustrate all sorts of different kinds of leaders, different kinds of groups, and the variable effects that leadership decapitation will have, depending on the leader and the role that he played in that group. In the case of the Taliban, you have a leadership that's more strategic than the rank and file. It's more aware that civilian targeting uh, isn't uh, such a good thing strategically, right? And so one of the consequences 
is that when you take out the leader of a group that is more averse to attacking civilians than lower level members, the odds that their replacements will then um, direct the group's violence against civilian targeting actually um, rises. Um, and so we need well, to be- Well, could you argue that's a good thing? You could argue, so- Because it, they lose, right. according to your argument. It depends on what, what our goal is. Um, if, uh, if, if you want to erode the tactical quality of the militant group, then taking out the leader is a, uh, is a wise choice. Um, keeping the leader intact uh, facilitates the odds that they'll achieve their goal. Um, yeah, there, so there are basically all sorts of different trade-offs, but uh, I think that you would agree with me that it's very important for us to have a good understanding, whatever our incentive structure might be, um, of what these leaders actually do in order for us to make accurate predictions of the basically post-decap fallout. Okay. Mm -hmm. Right here. All right, wait, we've got a uh, microphone coming. So if you look at AQIM and its precursors, GSPC and GIA, and its offshoots and the mass brigade, you know, and all this, Mukhtar bin Mukhtar, his group, his breakaway is going back. If you, and if you look at all the debates, the primary debate is about the killing, killing of civilians and which civilians. Right. Um, and this is a big debate. And if you look at the Inaminas attack in 2013 in Algeria, um, the debate in the Algerian security services was about that too. And, and, and one hand, the heavier hand, ended up winning and killing a bunch of hostages. So, so, so they were aware, both sides are aware of the cost. And so my question, it might sound like out of left field, but my question is why rules? Why not debates? Why not shifting tactics? You know, when Mukhtar Mukhtar goes in or out of an organization, he's looking for increased spect spectacularity and different civilian targets in one setting, and then in another, he'll sort of ap apply the rules for a while or in a certain selective way. So, so my question is, why rules, and why not instead look about shifting tactics and sort of debates and, and, and ranges of views rather than rules? Sure. I mean, this isn't a, this isn't a static analysis. I mean, it's not as if uh, groups, you know, from their origin to the end um, stay the same. So it, 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 my, my rules can capture all sorts of, um, you know, uh, variation in the behavior of the group uh, over time. In fact, one of the things that I show is that smart militant leaders, they don't, they're not necessarily born knowing what works and what doesn't. Um, but I'm able to demonstrate statistically um, that in general, uh, groups tend to uh, smarten up over time in terms of their tactical choices. Um, that the longer a group uh, exists, the lower the odds of attacking uh, civilian targets. Um, so so I, I, I do show um, th this sort of variation, not just between groups, but within groups in terms of over time. Um, debates would be very cool. Um, I just happen to, to do uh, rules. Um, a lot, uh, you know, when, especially in the DC community, when we think of militant groups, we're essentially thinking, what are the rules for governments? You know, what is it that government should do? Um, 
I thought it would be interesting to kind of flip that on its head and look at what, what, what are actually the rules for the militants themselves. In a way, it's an even more interesting question because, because they have so much less capability, they really need to know better um, the, you know, what, what it is that they should uh, be following. Um, but I very much do like your idea of a debate. Um, and maybe we'll team up on that uh, next time. That's, that's, that's book number two. Yeah, right here. Yeah, right here. Hi, um, I was wondering if you could talk about Al-Nusra and if you consider them to be an example of a group that like moderates its behavior to achieve a political goal. Yeah, so there was, in my opinion, there was an overemphasis on ISIS. Um, and anybody who knows anything about Syria knows that that country is teeming with militant groups. Um, you can think back between 2014, especially to about 2016, and there were just so many pundits talking about how smart ISIS was. Um, and it basically uh, showed uh, ISIS was successful in terms of metrics like its membership size, uh, it, its amount of territorial control. Um, but now I want you to fast forward to today. And uh, imagine, I wouldn't recommend this, but imagine like walking around Raqqa. Or imagine walking around like Idlib or uh, Aleppo, for example, or Afrin, right? And compare what's going on in those places. Um, you won't find many ISIS guys anywhere, really. Um, certainly not in comparison to uh, whatever we want to call Nusra, whatever it, the name is that we want to call it today. Let's call it HTS. Uh, you compare the number of HTS members to ISIS, and it's orders of magnitude higher. Uh, and, it, and it's higher because it's a much more popular group slash umbrella group. It's much more popular um, with the locals. It's much more popular with most other groups. It's even more popular um, in terms of governments. Right? And, when, and, when you, and, and of course, HTS is more moderate. HTS does a better job of following the rules than ISIS did. When you become even more moderate, and that's not hard, I don't mean to suggest at all, anybody who knows me will know that I don't believe that HTS is, is moderate in the sense that we should have supported them. I was never in favor, in fact, um, of the rebel program. I was always concerned, on record, um, that it was too extremist-tinged um, from, from really very, very early on. So I don't mean to suggest that they're moderate in the sense that we should support HTS, but they're relatively moderate compared to ISIS. And as you get more moderate, say like the Free Syrian Army or the uh, National Front for, for Liberation, uh, this is an umbrella that has a surprisingly large number of members. The media, of course, especially the international media, doesn't find it as interesting. Um, but there are tens of thousands of members under arms, um, and it's more moderate. It's much easier for locals to support uh, you know, the Free Syrian Army and its umbrella. It's much more easy uh, for, for governments like Turkey to support. Um, and so uh, Syria is a good theater it's an intrinsically important one, and it's also a very illustrative one to show how the media sometimes fixates incorrectly on the most, on the most extreme uh, groups 
when kind of underneath their noses, less known to the general public, it's the more moderate groups that are doing better by the very standard that the media is using to elevate the supposed strategic genius of the most extreme group. Let me, let me, let me just ask a follow-up question to that because Nusra is an interesting example, or, or Hayatari al-Sham, which is uh, a group that is more moderate in the sense that it does not target civilians. Uh, what is your assessment that um, how much that factor contributes to victory, as you describe it, as opposed to other factors? In other words, a group can be, can't a group be um, limited in its targeting of civilians yet still lose? Oh, 100%. I mean, again, due to the power asymmetries. Um, we're, I did my best to capture, and, and I know that you've gone through similar exercises in books and also in your reports, um, but important reports, um, which I cite, um, is that uh, you know, we're always trying to get like the universe of data that we're working with. Um, but, there, but there is a big selection issue where we're much more likely to know about a group when it succeeds. There have been, men, there have been countless losers I think you would admit, uh, throughout world history that basically never made it into the history books. Um, so I don't, I don't mean to uh, dispute that. Um, so, uh, you know, a, some kind of a very, very small militant group, especially if it has a really uh, extreme political platform, it can't just follow these rules and expect success. Um, there's no, um, you know, this is science, it's not magic. Mm -hmm. Over here. Uh, just wait for the microphone at, so that we can hear it on the, on the video recording. Thank you. Hello. Uh, two questions. Uh, first, regarding the definition of victory for those groups that are successful, do you find that the definition of victory um, partially changes for them over time? Usually militant groups start with very large aspirations, and sometimes just being invited to a negotiation table ends up being the big victory. Let me respond to uh, that, and you can ask the next one. Okay. I'd like to just go back for it. So um, yes, militant groups do that all the time. Um, basically, in order to attract recruits, militant groups need to seem like they're successful. Um, and unfortunately, many, many pundits um, basically repeat um, what the militant groups themselves are saying, even when the militant group has basically changed the, uh, you know, what's it called? The finish line. Um, militant groups are constantly adjusting what their stated political aims are in order to make it seem like they're not complete failures. Unfortunately, pundits help them do it by saying things like, no, this is what ISIS wanted all along. It, yeah, sure, the people, the fighters were called soldiers of a caliphate, the leader was called a caliph, the group itself was called Islamic State, but actually what ISIS really wanted was to just be dispersed into the desert, much quieter, like its early origins before people even knew about ISIS. Um, so yes, uh, uh, th th there's a really great book written, uh, I think in 1994, by a professor at Maryland uh, named Mark Lickbach. Uh, and he calls this uh, the, the illusion of efficacy. 
Um, and basically, militant leaders uh, partake in the illusion of uh, efficacy, and there's also the illusion of victory uh, in order to make it seem like the group is doing much better than it might uh, appear. Uh, and I think that one thing that we can do is we can actually call out these groups and show how ineffective they actually are, particularly where, when you compare to what their uh, stated intent was of forming in the first place. Thank you. Um, my second question was related to a, a lot of the growing research in the past several years about that, that brings into question the efficacy of violence as part of a social movement in the first place, and that argues that actually maintaining a nonviolent movement is more effective. I've, I've got my own questions about a lot of that research myself, but I guess if, if we're creating a gradation of, you know, you've got rules about clear modes of violence right. that do not succeed, you've identified the violence that apparently sometimes does succeed. If you were counseling a group that was in the middle of that existential debate, do we go violent or not? Aside from you would tell them don't participate in terrorism, would you tell them to, pursue, to consider pursuing violence in the first place and yeah. under what circumstances? Excellent question. There is a literature um, that compares uh, the efficacy of civil resistance uh, to violence. Uh, the most well-known person in this area is my good friend, uh, Erica Chenoweth. Um, and so basically what she uh, purports to find empirically is that civil resistance outperforms um, violence. Um, we could, if we have more time after this, we can get into the nitty-gritty about um, to what extent I believe those findings. Uh, however, my book is a little bit different because whether you believe that civil resistance works or not, what you cannot dispute is that many militant groups, after using civil resistance, don't succeed, and that they end up becoming violent actors. And so my, my analysis is, okay, once we're dealing in this world of violence, what is it that distinguishes the successes for the failures? In the book, I should note, I do not advocate violence. I do not advocate social movements moving from civil resistance to violence. I'm taking it as a given um, because so many groups end up concluding, rightly or wrongly, um, they, they, many, many, the groups that go on to become militant groups, I think they disagree with Erica Chenoweth. I think that they think that civil resistance isn't the best path for them and that they, sh they should use violence. Um, so whether we like it or not, many of these radicals will become rebels and I provide the strategy for them to win. Right here, and then Clayton, you're next, so. Right, right here, up front. Very interesting thesis, Max. Uh, uh, very, very much enjoyed your talk. Um, you've you. mentioned all, your, all the examples you've given so far of relatively recent history. Yeah. And I wonder if you've looked at past history. Uh, one example that comes to my mind is the American Revolution right. and the American rebels, where well, they performed things we would call terrorist acts today. In fact, right. maybe really violent and horrible terrorist acts on the American loyalists. So is there anything different about the conflicts today than was different back then? Because obviously our revolution violently succeeded. Sure. And interestingly, the person that you're sitting next to has written about this uh, in quite a prominent way about the Revolutionary War and how that fits within our understanding um, of terrorism and success. Um, again, so what I like to say is that there are terrorist splitters versus terrorist lumpers. I call myself a terrorist splitter 
in the sense that I define terrorism very, very narrowly as a non-state actor who uses violence against civilian targets in particular to achieve their political aim. Many people define terrorism differently. They tend to be lumpers. They tend to look at any attack carried out by a militant group as terrorism. Not surprisingly, it's the lumpers who tend to see so much terrorist success. I would argue, um, and maybe you two would disagree with me on this, that the, that the, um, that the revolutionaries um, were not engaging so much uh, as like, in wanton violence against civilian targets, but were basically trying to repel um, what they perceived as an occupation. And that most of the violence in that sense wasn't against civilian in nature, um, but that it was more government and even military. Um, what's interesting um, is how the Patriot Movement um, has misunderstood this historical episode and drawn incorrect lessons about what led to the revolutionaries' success. My understanding is that when Timothy McVeigh was pulled over in his rider truck, he was wearing a Thomas Jefferson t-shirt and had a stack of uh, literature that he had like underlined, including stuff from like John Locke about using blood for liberty and Thomas Jefferson. Um, these, it, meanwhile, what was he blowing up? He wasn't blowing up targets like the revolutionaries. He was blowing up babies. Uh, he was blowing up a nursery school in the Alfred P. Murat building. So the Patriot Movement um, has sort of gain, tried to gain intellectual sustenance from this apparent terrorist success. They, they, the Patriot Movement, they really see themselves as modern day revolutionaries. Um, but they've drawn incorrect lessons because they didn't pay attention to target selection. So I would argue um, that the Revolutionary War actually fits within my understanding um, of the rules better um, than you might think. Uh, I'll just stop there. I think our microphone holder has a question. I was just wondering if you could speak a little towards, you, you had mentioned the relative success of groups like Lebanese Hezbollah or the Taliban, and there's fairly clear links between both those groups and state actors and intel services, and I'm wondering if, whether that connection you see is, is there really a brain trust there, or is, is, is there just a, a state actor and an intel service kind of making, or, uh, making the calls? I don't understand the last, last point, the last, last point. I'm wondering if there's a true brilliance behind the leaders of those groups or if there's a lot of help by state actors. I mean, well, if, well, if, if I can jump on this for a second, I mean, part of this is gets to some of the examples you highlighted. Taliban's got a close link to an external spy agency, ISI, and Hezbollah to Iran. Of course. Uh, do groups with, with ties to external states also moderate? Uh, they, they recognize the rules that you outline. Yeah, I mean, so, so, so any, I mean, the more there's, you know, I, I went to UCLA and I studied under a guy named uh, James DiNardo, and he wrote a very good book uh, called uh, Power in Numbers. Uh, and basic, a basic truism of organizations is that all else equal, the more members you have in a group, uh, the, the stronger you are, the, the better your chances uh, of success. Um, so there's no, so support can take the shape in many different forms. State sponsorship of terrorist groups is a very, very important aspect of support. Uh, it is impossible to imagine Hezbollah without Iran, right? It is probably impossible to imagine the Taliban without Pakistan, 
right? So state sponsorship is a very critical part, particularly for, for some very important um, terrorist groups, right? Um, but uh, yeah, so, so I don't want to dispute that. But what you seem to suggest is that, um, that somehow the strategy of the militants and the external support are kind of operating on separate planes. Um, but actually, the, the, the militants themselves are in part responsible for uh, the amount of external support that they receive. Um, now, of course, uh, there's a very, very close alignment between uh, Hezbollah and Iran. There isn't a whole lot of daylight, right? Um, but uh, so it, in a way, I mean, uh, Hezbollah is just a real proxy of Iran. But in other cases, sort of the dyadic relationship between the sponsor and the militant group isn't as strong. Uh, and when, and militants to a large extent can control how much external support they're getting, especially when there's more of sort of a principal agent problem between uh, the government and the militant group. Um, and so um, I would suggest that the way that militant groups behave uh, based on the decisions of the leader to a large extent drive the amount of support that external actors um, are providing, um, even though uh, in some cases, uh, they seem to see, you know, perfectly eye to eye. Was there, was there a question in the back? Yeah. Oh, thanks. Thanks for a great talk. Um, could you speak more about the Taliban since they're very long lasting? They've been around for a while. Have they moderated their, uh, this contrast that you have above? Has that changed over time? Has there been learning, whether it's because of their, changing relationship with Pakistan, but as one of the most long-lasting yeah. terrorist groups out there, or not even terrorists, but uh, so maybe that's part of your point. You wouldn't label them as terrorists. Well, I actually, although I kind of violated this in my last answer, it's not, I mean, what is like the unit of analysis, right? Like, is it, is it the group or is it, or is it the incident itself? It's better to think of these actors, I think, as uh, militant groups or some kind of a resistance group because they, especially when they're big and, when, and uh, when they have large numbers of members and they're quite active, they tend to use a variety of different tactics, the same organization, right? So a, a, like a, a, a militant group could use terrorism. A, a terrorist group could engage in civil resistance, right? Um, so I would say, I guess, the Taliban, you could obviously call it a terrorist group because a non-state actor um, that attacks civilian targets for some kind of a political aim. But it also attacks uh, a lot of military targets as well, right? Um, and it probably does all sorts of other kinds of resistance that we're not uh, even familiar with. Uh, it's better, I think, it's more precise to focus on the particular incident itself in order to isolate the independent effects. Right, right. In terms of in terms of the Taliban's behavior, I think that that in in the case of most groups, there is uh, more learning about avoiding civilian targets. 
but we are actively interfering in this natural learning process because we're continuously taking out the leaders. And when you look at like the average age of the Taliban leaders and commanders, they go down lower and lower. So they're less learned in all sorts of ways. They're less likely to have read other works. They're less likely to have personal experience, which would lead them to reach the right strategic conclusions. I actually believe that, that leadership decapitation is, is basically preventing uh, more learning. But I would still say, I would still predict that uh, over time, uh, especially if we don't take out the leaders, that there will be more learning, that there will be even greater opposition to civilian attacks uh, in order to gain more uh, local support and international uh, legitimacy. I mean, just, just to highlight this, and then we, and then we have uh, uh, time for two, two more last questions. I'm gonna bundle you two together. Um, the, I think there has been learning with the Taliban, uh, particularly under the current uh, Emir Akunsada, uh, and we see some Taliban killing of civilians, but it's, it's one of two or three types, either very targeted killing of civilians um, to send a message to villagers in a given area uh, not to collaborate with government officials. So these are civilians in a sense, but you might put them in quotation marks because they're viewed as collaborating, providing information. So are they civilians or not? I think Taliban would claim they're not civilians. They're providing intelligence information to Afghan intelligence or, or US or other NATO forces. The other is where they've targeted uh, convoys, for example, and killed civilians in and around the vicinity. Right. And I think, you know, there are cases where uh, we'll count civilian casualties as part of targeting incidents, but they're not the intended target of the attack. I do think they have been careful and increasingly careful to limit, and, and they've said this in strategic guidance from the Inner Now, as you noted, you can get some variation at lower levels, district level commanders, military commanders, or even provincial level military commanders. Um, but uh, the, the leadership itself has been increasingly careful about trying to limit civilian casualties, I think for many of the reasons you outlined. Just a quick two finger on that is that uh, when a, uh, when civilians are struck and the leader is smart, um, what he will try to do initially is what I call uh, denial of organizational involvement. He will try, that leader will try to deny that his organization is responsible for the civilian attacks. And so, uh, well, anyway, that, that was the other chart where you saw that civilian attacks are less likely to be claimed. However, realistically, it's not always plausible, credible, for a leader to deny that its members committed that attack. And so what smart leaders do then, which I show in the book, isn't denial of organizational involvement, but what I call denial of principal intent. DPI, I call it. In DPI, the leader acknowledges that his members committed the attack, but denies that it reflects the mission of the group. Essentially, it's a method for the leader to distance that suboptimal uh, form of violence from perceptions of the organization. And uh, I, I got into all sorts of like wacky, you know, eclectic literatures where I uh, looked at um, what do executives um, do 
in crisis situations when they want to improve the PR of their organization when one of their sort of rank and file employees has done something really embarrassing. Like for example, what happens when somebody who works for Domino's uh, you know, takes a screenshot spitting into the pizza? You know, what does, uh, you know, and then blasts it on the internet? What does the CEO do then? And basically what I show is that smart militant leaders do many of the same proven techniques to distance their organization from that PR disaster. For example, they apologize. They apologize for the civilian carnage. That shows, look, our organization did it, but we're not proud about it. They scapegoat that operative. They say that some other, that, that some guy did this, but we don't approve of it. They take corrective action. They publicly punish him in order to show, look, the leadership disagrees with this sorts of behavior, and on and on. And so uh, the Taliban is actually quite clever at doing that, and often has to do that, precisely because there's this disconnect between the selectivity of the violence advocated by the leadership and the indiscriminate violence committed by low-level operatives. Mm -hmm. oh, right here, and then we'll, we've got one more, and then. We've got to wrap it up. We're already bumping up against the end. I'm wondering about the practical implications of this. Should the governments, the anti-terrorist groups, respond differently to the successful ones versus the unsuccessful ones? What approach should they do? Sounds like you're saying just ignore the unsuccessful ones because they're going away. It doesn't really sound like a good government policy. But how would they, how would they behave to the different groups, different sure. spectrums? Yeah, so again, this really is from the vantage of the militant. However, there are, I think, important uh, policy implications. Uh, one of them is, consider during the Cold War, uh, one of the main concerns beyond just the world getting blown up and people dying uh, was whether you know, Europe or in other parts of the world would go red. People have a very, are, are very interested, not just in like security, but in the, the future political world that we live in, you know, will certain countries become uh, Islamist? Will they not? Uh, will uh, certain areas of the world go communist or not? Uh, will nationalist aspirations of one group succeed or fail? So I think that that's an important policy implication of the book because what I show is the circumstances under which these go political goals are more likely to be achieved and which ones are not. Um, and then there are also all sorts of other implications, for example, with respect to leadership decapitation. I can explain, I can show um, in a way that no other scholar has found um, how the tactical behavior of groups is altered when you take out one leader versus another. If you show me the leader, I can tell you um, probabilistically um, how the nature of that group's violence is going to change. This could be very important for, say, NGOs on the ground. They might, want to, they might have an interest in knowing which kinds of targets will be attacked. Governments might have an interest in knowing, should we take out the leaders? Um, sometimes they really shouldn't. Uh, for example, I think that Israel, to give one example, um, made a mistake. Uh, during the second intifada with the Al-Aqsa martyrs and taking out the leadership. I think that it led to lower level operatives who are more likely to attack uh, the Israeli uh, citizen, citizenry. Uh, there are also implications with respect to uh, social media. 
Um, most people have been saying, oh, we need to get ISIS off these accounts. We need to shut down ISIS accounts um, on Twitter and Facebook. Um, you know, J.M. Berger, for example, uh, considered it very, very successful when you remove an ISIS account. He measured success in terms of whether ISIS ended up having fewer accounts. Well, of course it would. Um, because that's what we're doing. You know, if you're taking out the accounts of the group, then the group is going to have fewer accounts. But I'm not really sure that that's the best way to evaluate success. In certain cases, these organizations are using social media in a counterproductive fashion. They're bragging about all of the carnage. When, it, when, it, when a militant group is doing something very, very stupid, we shouldn't get in the way. We should welcome it. Um, and so there are actually strong implications, not just for governments and NGOs, um, but also for uh, social media platforms like Twitter and Facebook. It's a very sort of pro-government um, implication in the book, or a pro-company, -pro uh, pro-private sector, yeah. And last question. Sure, an, an observation and a comment, uh, or a comment and a question. Uh, first of all, uh, it's clear that the Taliban understands the, the problem of killing civilians because when we kill military, uh, we get in a fight, they immediately blame us for killing civilians. Right. So they're obviously aware of the efficacy of it. Scapegoating, yeah. Uh, but my experience in the wars is that they're constantly changing, morphing, the organizations in them are morphing, the conditions for success are changing, our goals are changing. With these rules, have you looked at measuring process over time as well as a static snapshot oh, yes. of how organizations are? I do. Um, I look at uh, learning about uh, which targets to attack. I look at the evolution of the structure of organizations. Um, and I, I look at all three rules um, as sort of a dynamic phenomenon. Some of these groups, as you know, are actually quite old. Um, and, and, and they change quite a bit. Um, so I look at them uh, over time and try to explain these different changes and what are the uh, implications for dealing with them. Great. Well, if, uh, if you'll join me in thanking Max, I think one testament to a good talk and discussion is that we had many more hands up than we had time for. So um, that's my measure of success and victory here. Uh, I'll take it. My measure is book sales, and I brought a few. So I can't. I've got a really good discount, no joke, if you, if you want to talk to me. Great. Well, thanks for, thanks for coming. We enjoyed the discussion. If you'll all join me in thanking Max, that was great. Thank you for doing this. Thank you very much. Fun, that was fun.